Hey everybody, this is Morgan Spurlock. That ugly guy who makes movies is now the ugly guy who's making a brand new podcast called Week in the Knees. Not only are we going to tell you the stories that gobbled up the news every single day, we're going to tell you the ones that were lost because of those stories. Subscribe today. Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And we are extremely excited to be joined by a friend of the show, a third time guest on a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks, co-creator of such shows as The Leftovers and Lost. Put your hands together in whatever strand of reality you're currently inhabiting for Damon Lindelof. Damon, thanks very much for joining us here couldn't possibly be more excited to be here for my third and and probably final time though you never know you do never know who knows there could be another season of twin peaks and we could be doing another podcast and we would love to have you on all the time do you think it's possible that right now david lynch is and mark frost are sort of huddling saying we were really happy with the way things ended couldn't be more satisfying but god the the, the Twin Peaks podcast is just finally firing on all cylinders. We, we need to give them more, more to chat about, more to talk about. Hell, let's, let's, let's do another season. My personal belief is that Twin Peaks uh, was my own little pocket of universe happily ever after. It existed only for me and my pleasure and my indulgence of my nostalgia. And so, yes, I'd like to think that the that the firemen gods of my universe, David Lynch and Mark Frost, are creating a whole new season of Twin Peaks again just for me. Yes. In my construct of David Lynch, which has no basis on the actual David Lynch, whom I've never uh, met. Um, if you were to say to him, do you listen to uh, Jeff and Darren's Twin Peaks podcast? His response would be, what's a podcast? <laughs> um, that's, that, that's my that's the way I imagine it would go. <laughs> well, I have my own personal tulpa of David Lynch, who not only listens to podcasts, but has been recording the world's longest podcast since the middle of the 1980s. But I, I believe there was some news report circling around where he claimed that he has not watched new movies or new TV shows, except for TV shows about cars, which now I'm kind of picturing him for the last 10 years since Inland Empire, just sort of watching endless reruns of Top Gear. And I, I find that, that that actually does help me understand Twin Peaks of the Return more than almost anything that happened in the last couple of hours. That's fantastic. And and just for the record, uh, my own personal topa is my favorite Depeche Mode song. So <laughs> I'm right there with you. There we go. There excellent, we go. Excellent song. Yeah. yeah. So, Damon, we are, you know, we're talking to you on Tuesday morning, 48 hours removed, not even 48 hours removed from the final two hours of Twin Peaks, which means that you've had plenty of time to process it and make perfect sense of it. So please tell us, what was that all about, uh, the, the final two hours of Twin Peaks? Please explain everything to us, sir. I'm going to say, you know, surprisingly, not too much to talk about here. Very, very self-explanatory, um, kind of, you know, by the numbers, just right. sort of, you know, straight, straight down the middle. Um, uh, immensely satisfying, no room really for debate or interpretation. And, uh, um, who would, have who would have thunk it? Um, How about that? Yeah. I, <laughs> I went away for the weekend with my family and, uh, and we were gone Saturday nights and Sunday night for, uh, for the holiday, uh, at a hotel. But I did inform them that once they went to bed, that I would be uh, watching the two-hour finale on my iPad, curled up in the bathroom of our hotel room um, with my headphones on, uh, which I couldn't Im- imagine a better uh, way to, um, uh, to watch it. And I will say that the walk back from the bathroom to the bed, which was not uh, far by any stretch of the imagination, was one, in, the, in the pitch dark was one of the most terrifying uh, walks that I've ever taken. Um, I was, uh, I was just, you know, the emotional, I think that we should just kind of start w- with the emotional response before we open up the hood and, and, and get into all the other fun stuff. But I'll just say, like, I was, I was left deeply unsettled, upset, scared, um, 
it, when it ended, uh, that, that was sort of like my overall kind of takeaway from it. And I think that something starts to happen in your, in your body, particularly when it comes to the series finales, where your mind just knows, oh, we're, you know, we're 10 minutes away from the end end. Um, how, like, what's going to happen over the course of the next 10 minutes, but sort of the slow buildup from basically everything that happens, you know, post uh, Diane and, uh, and Cooper kind of crossing the threshold uh, of that when they stop at that, um, uh, you know, that kind of matrix of electrical wires, you know, at 430 miles and, and say, you know, we're, we're about to cross over, something's about to happen. The, the slow, steady, unrelenting uh, sense of sort of unease and something is, is not right, something is bad, something is wrong, and uh, uh, just kind of built and built and built. And it became very evident that I was not going to get any relief uh, from, from this. And, uh, you know, to kind of um, to boil it down to, I liked it. I didn't like it. It was brilliant. It wasn't brilliant. I think is, is reducing the, you know, the short-term, um, emotional response. And I think that I did love it. I love this entire season, everything about it, but I also, I can't, even though we have had this whole day to think about it now, um, I refused. I refuse to kind of offer the hot take. I really feel like this is a a piece of material, um, a piece of art that requires a little bit uh, more thought and time to uh, fully digest and and wrap my brain around. There's some things that I want to re- revisit, but most importantly, there's conversations that I want to have. Uh, with fellow enthusiasts like yourselves to kind of unpack it all. Um, uh, but uh, this is going to be an evolving um, uh, sequence of how I feel about it. But, uh, you know, hour one, uh, truly extraordinary, loved everything about it. And as as hour one was ending, I was like, uh, oh my God, there's still going to be an hour more. What are they going to do? And to say that it defied my expectations is, uh, is an understatement. That's the, that's the shortest long-winded answer I could possibly give you. <laughs> and a great answer. There's so much in what you're saying there. Well, it's great for me because you reflected my experience. So, so it's great. No, but I can relate to so much of what you're saying, specifically in that final hour this intensifying dread that I'm feeling based on what is being depicted on screen, even as we're, and ironically so, because some of these moments were technically supposed to be expressing some kind of happily ever after, whether it's saving Laura's life by changing history or this romance, the sex scene, this connection between Cooper and Diane in some lost highway hotel. But the presentation and the the vibe and the meaning of everything is clearly like, no, this is wrong. There's something wrong here. And it kept on going and going and going uh, that way. But that was also sort of like complemented by and joined by the meta experience of the show, knowing that A, the clock is ticking toward the end of Twin Peaks and we're never going to get maybe anything ever again. And what I maybe want from this hour is to see Cooper like connect with people in Twin Peaks and give me some of those sentimental nostalgic nostalgia hits. But instead, the story is taking him further and further away from Twin Peaks geographically and in time, space and dimension. And then like the, the, the final 15 minutes you know, the, the longest of the car rides in two hours of very long car rides. <laughs> I think that like that scene with like Cooper taking Laura home from Texas or sorry, Carrie Page home from Texas, like I think stretched for 10, 12 minutes, bringing us to those final five minutes of that. Just what what's going to happen like 
when they knock on that door and who's going to open it? And are we going to be left in a sort of like rapturous state of healing and catharsis and all of that? Or are we going to be devastated? And at the end, I don't know. It was maybe both, I think. I don't know. But yeah, again, not wanting, like you, not wanting to put words on it like good or bad, love, hate. It was just such an amazingly intense, surreal, uncanny experience that I'm going to be revisiting over and probably feeling different about every time I look at it. So, Darren, how about you? Like, 24 hours more since the finale. How, how are you feeling about what you felt uh, about about those hours? You know, um, what's great, Jeff, is we, you and I literally talked about the final hours. I mean, on our podcast, we talked about it for several hours, and we've also talked about it and texted about it for most of the hours we were not podcasting. And one of the <laughs> most fun things that I just love about this finale so much is I think I've already tried turned around a couple times or at least deepened and radically altered my interpretation of it several times. So I I just, I love that experience. But to get back to what you were both talking about, just on the emotional level, I find it really interesting and I've not come up with either a fun term for this, uh, nor is there really possibly even enough of an index for it to call it a trend. But I'm so intrigued that so many TV series now seem very willing to do this interesting thing where the penultimate episode, penultimate hour, Twin Peaks, 18-hour movie, whatever you want to call it, but the the penultimate hour is almost like the payoff point, this climactic point for Twin Peaks. It's the point when our metaphorical Dorothy Dale Cooper has returned to Oz with his old friends and his new friends all assembled together. And then, you know, there's even, to me, him returning to Laura Palmer. That almost kind of feels like it's some concluding point of everything that's ever happened in Twin Peaks. And then to, to kind of willfully do this final hour that I'm so loath to call it an epilogue, but that just forces you to kind of reframe everything you've seen or seems to be kind of commenting on that or seems to be sort of forcing you to grapple with it in a different way. I mean, just this also happened this year in a different way, but also a way that I've seen a couple people kind of link it to with the TV series Girls, which kind of had that epic final moment, all characters together, penultimate hour, and then something very different in its final episode. I mean, Damon, I might even say there's an interesting element of that in The Leftovers as well. And and we'd sort of talked about this idea that the penultimate hour of The Leftovers, you sort of get the pyrotechnics that one often associates with an ending of a big cosmic story like this, and then something very different in the actual ending. And so I guess once I realized that that's kind of what the show was doing, that we'd sort of gotten, as Damon was saying, these incredible payoffs, and we'd seen Freddy, the greatest hero in TV history, take down... Bob, the the <laughs> greatest and most villainous floating orb in TV history. That just felt like that was so for me the catharsis, and I was I was in a way not surprised when you know Lynch immediately stamped the face of Kyle MacLachlan over everything that followed in that scene, just so that I couldn't quite fully enjoy that scene as much as I wanted to. Like I, I feel like you're meant to sort of be a little bit like God. Candy has sandwiches. This is so great and. And yet there's something weird here, but it just felt to me like I got the payoff that I wanted. And then everything after that felt like bonus time to me. This is all to say that I think I was less troubled by all the driving than uh, some people were. <laughs> I completely agree. And I, I think that, uh, you know, as, as the 17th, uh, so I basically watched it on, uh, you know, Showtime anytime. Uh, because this hotel didn't have showtime. And so they're, they're blocked off into two separate episodes. Um, and so when episode 17 ended, um, and you're just looking out at the forest, um, uh, before you get to Julie Cruz, I was like, I've made a horrible mistake. And I think I accidentally just watched the final hour first, like (laughs) maybe, maybe the penultimate episode was actually some grand departure like episode eight was and oh my god i've made a horrible mistake and then realizing that the sequencing was correct but what's really interesting is on that app basically every episode has that has has basically a still 
from the opening title with Laura's face superimposed over the kind of, you know, the misty woods of, of Twin Peaks as the titles open, but the 18th hour has Cooper's face. So it's 17 uh, superimposed Laura's and then one superimposed Cooper. And I was like, oh, uh, kudos to whoever made that decision, um, <laughs> especially especially after having watched the uh, the 17th hour. But I, I do have to say one other thing, because because you brought it up, Darren, I, I, I now think it's time. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys shared this information with your listeners, but but after the after the, I came on the podcast for the first time, and we were talking about Bob, we decided it might be fun to um, to ask ourselves the question, how will Bob ultimately be defeated in, in this season of, of Twin Peaks, if in fact that is the, the trajectory that we're on? And you guys submitted your entries in sealed envelopes, um, and I, I put my prognostication also in a sealed envelope, and I, I have those envelopes now here with me now, and I figured it might just be a fun exercise to open up the envelopes and read what everybody guessed, sort of in that range. Uh, I guess it was right around episode three or four that we that we did this. Would that be okay with, with you guys? It's about time. That sounds great to me. I'm honestly surprised that you still have those because that feels like years ago yeah. to me now. Well, I thought it was really it was actually Jeff's idea because of the um, the board game Clue, where when you make your final guess, you know it's Colonel Mustard in the drawing room with the wrench. You actually have to seal it in a small envelope and then, you know, and then it's, oh, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to open up the envelope now. And in no particular, this is Jeff's envelope. If it's okay, Jeff, we're going to do you first. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So Jeff wrote, uh, Bob is an immortal evil, unlikely to be vanquished by conventional means. But as I'm on the spot, I'll guess log lady in the red room with a log. Okay. Good guess, Jeff. Ah, uh, yes. Unfortunately, no, incorrect. <laughs> no. That is such classic, Jensen. You, you got to say immediately like, oh, well, the game is rigged. But nevertheless, like, yeah, that does not but, surprise but, wait, me. Wait, 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 wait. But in my defense... Log lady using her log as a baseball bat to bat around Bob, very close to kind of what happened, given <laughs> it, that we had Freddie essentially guess. playing like bomb ball with, with, with his glove, right? It was, it was a good guess. It was a good guess. Thank you. All right, I'm Thank now you. opening up Darren's envelope and hold on. Darren has written, much shorter here, Jerry Horn with his <laughs> foot in the woods, duh. <laughs> I might argue we we did get a reference to Jerry and he you know how did he get to Wyoming was it through a parallel universe we don't know I'll have a full dissertation on this coming soon I love that by the way that one it's it's basically like we're going to give two dangling storylines closure uh, one is what what happened to Janie E and Sonny Jim, and will they get the tulpa promised unto them? And the other is is Jerry going to be okay? Forget Audrey and and the eighteen thousand other plot strands. I was just like, maybe they are listening to the podcast. That one was I felt like it was just for you, Darren. <laughs> Honored. All right. So okay. So finally, I'm going to open up my envelope, and uh, and these have not been tampered with. In, uh, in at least 12 weeks. And here's what I have written. I wrote, it'll either be Cooper himself or an as yet unintroduced character with a green gardening glove in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department who will punch an orb-like beach ball bob into tiny pieces. He will probably be British. So... <laughs> I, wow. guess I, I guess I win. I guess God, I win. You just, you, you just really followed all the clues. They telegraphed it a little. They telegraphed it a little. How I came <laughs> right. to that conclusion, I'm going to keep to myself. But I didn't know we could put two possibilities in the envelope. I mean, you guessed either Cooper or that completely lucky guess. So like, I, that, that's, I wish I had another crack at it personally. I, uh, I, I like could go back in time. And I, and I always cheat. I like how having two guesses in there was also secretly an expression of the fact that there would ultimately be two realities. That's just that's just classic. You totally read the tea leaves. There we go. You knew where it was going. You guessed better than uh, we did. <laughs> you know, about these two hours, 
let's kind of go through them a little bit, starting with part 17. And let's start with something that I know that we've all been dialoguing about, you, you and me, Darren, you and me, Damon. But that's the surprising, out of nowhere, it seemed, download of mythology that we got from Gordon Cole, which to my ears and eyes sounded like a retcon of sorts. Not only were we introduced to a big bad of the Twin Peaks universe, which yes, was kind of maybe teased through other things, but this revelation that Cole, Briggs, and Cooper were undertaking some kind of secret mission dating back from the original Twin Peaks to seek out this entity of negative energy called Zhao Day, aka Judy, and to bring him, her, it to justice, just to capture it, to do something. And that possibly, I guess, when Cooper entered into the Black Lodge at the end of season two, he wasn't just going to rescue Annie and have a final confrontation with Wyndham Earl, but he also might have been undertaking this mission. Was that your read to Damon on what we were told by Gordon? And and then what did you make of all of that and that story arriving uh, here at the beginning of part 17? Well, <laughs> softball. Um, the the <laughs> You know, again, the, the experience of watching it was that kind of right out of the gate, I, I laughed so hard. And because I was like sitting in a bathroom, I had to kind of stifle my laughter uh, so as not to alert my family. But Lynch just delivers a line, and I'm paraphrasing because I haven't rewatched uh, some version of as he's talking about Jeffries, he's like, he, he says something like, who probably, you know, doesn't even exist anymore, at least not in the conventional sense. Um, I just couldn't, I couldn't get past how amazing that line of dialogue was, um, that sort of everything that came after it was swallowed in the awesomeness of that line. And by time I was able to kind of dial back into what he was saying, I was reflecting, you know, uh, partially kind of comedically on, on what we were talking about uh, both uh, before the series began in terms of like, how hard are they going to lean on Firewalk with me? Um, do I need to watch it? it? You know, are they, you know, what about uh, Bowie? What about this, this, this nonsense that he talks about Judy? Are, are we going to meet Judy and getting kind of halfway into the return and being like, okay, that, that they've abandoned Judy. Like that's not going to be a thing only to kind of circle back and realize it was the thing. Um, uh, call it retcon, call it, uh, what you want. But I do think that, you know, one of the fundamental rules of just straight up Campbellian myth storytelling, uh, is that if you are, you know, if you're going to knock Vader out, it's time to set up the emperor. You know, there's always, you, 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 you can't, there has to be a continuum between bad guys. And so this idea of saying, uh, you know, Bob is the guy that, that we've been really presented as the big bad. He's the one who is responsible for killing Laura Palmer. He is the one who has now inhabited uh, Cooper. Um, uh, it's sort of amazing. And, and again, I have not done the deep internet dive, and so I defer to your vast um, uh, encyclopedic t- peaks knowledge. But did we even hear the name Bob in the return? Whoa. Good point. I'm actually not sure if we did. Now that I think about it, that's really interesting. I mean, well, we wait, we, we wait, saw wait, him born. Wait. I think we did once. It was, I believe, in part two after Mister C had killed Daria, and then he calls someone who he thinks is is Philip Jeffries then realizes that that person is not Philip Jeffries. By the way, a mystery that I don't think that the show ever quite resolved. Who was Mr. C talking to on that phone call in which it it culminates with him saying, you're going back, I'm paraphrasing now, but you're going back into the lodge tomorrow and I will be reunited. I will be with Bob again. Now, I think that is the only time we heard that name, though. Fascinating. And- What's even more fascinating about that is that it seems to suggest that Bob is not 
residing inside of Mr. C, um, which which was kind of the popular uh, theory coming out of of Twin Peaks season two, um, the the cliffhanger ending um, uh, that 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 you know that Bob is a possessing spirit and that um, that's who we're kind of you know, Mr. C, Dirty Cooper, whoever is, is actually Cooper's physical form inhabited by, uh, by this entity, Bob. And, and the visuals uh, seem to suggest as much, certainly in episode eight, when, uh, um, when he gets shot and we see our, our hobo massage for the first time. Um, and, then, and, and then, of course, that, that same sequence is, is basically repeated again in, um, in episode 17, but the idea that, you know, there is, we, we see Frank Silva, the actor who, who portrayed Bob, we do see his face, his visage, uh, is physically, um, in, inside of, of Mr. C, um, and, and is, is released. Um, so that would seem to suggest that. So it's interesting, uh, particularly Jeff, that this idea of like, that, that, Mr. C himself views them as, as separate entities um, versus that he is, in fact, possessed by Bob. Um, uh, again, something to, something to think about. But, you know, just back to your earlier point, though, you know, Lynch is obviously giving this monologue himself as Gordon Cole, and yeah. he's basically saying, I'm sure there are theories out there that Bob and Judy um, are, are the same. Uh, uh, that, uh, that maybe they're in, uh, they're, in, uh, a couple. I did, uh, of course, uh, the following morning, uh, Google, uh, Bob and Judy, um, just to see if there was anything out there worth note on the internet. And what's interesting is there's this talking head song, uh, called found a job. Um, and the, the, the lyrics, the lyrics are, damn that television, what a bad picture. Don't get upset. It's not a major disaster. There's nothing on tonight, he said. I don't know what's the matter. Nothing's ever on, she said, so I don't know why you bother. We've heard this little scene. We've heard it many times. People fighting over little things and wasting precious time. They might be better off, I think, the way it seems to me, making up their own shows, which might be better than TV. Judy's in the bedroom inventing situations. Bob is on the street today scouting up locations. They've enlisted all their family. They've enlisted all their friends. It helped save their relationship and made it work again. Their show gets real high ratings. They think they have a hit. There might even be a spinoff, but they're not sure about that. If they ever watch TV again, it'd be too soon for them. Bob never yells about the picture now. He's having too much fun. So think about this little scene, apply it to your life. If your work isn't what you love, then something isn't right. Just look at Bob and Judy. They're happy as can be, inventing situations, putting them on TV. Wow. It's okay. Wait. <laughs> That's cool. What song is it? It's called Found a Job. Found a Job. Um, and wow. is it possible that David Lynch just likes that song? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> Sure. He, if anybody is a Talking Heads fan, it's Lynch. <laughs> I'm, I'm now, I'm now really taken with the idea because we know that, like the fireman, the giant, he lives in this sort of like beautiful movie palace where he watches what's happening on Earth on a big movie screen. I'm suddenly very taken with the idea that Bob and Judy, in some extra dimensional sort of sitcom living room, were just sort of sitting watching the Earth on their TV set and decided that they were going to start quote unquote making their own TV show, whatever that means go to earth and start doing bad things to people in, uh, in, uh, twin peaks. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> Whether intentional or not, I think that it basically, and I, I guess I would say that one of the things that's been a little bit frustrating to behold in the, in the, in the 48 hours since the finale aired is, is this un understanding that the culture, you know, the television watching culture, uh, wants to say this was good, this was bad, 
and they and they basically land on this idea of it's divisive. They they by by time I woke up on Monday morning, there were already pieces saying how divisive it was. Um, and it infuriated me, as Jeff knows. I basically, you know, kind of went on a text screed. Uh, for all I, I, I hold that word with some de- degree of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, personal uh, to me the word divisive, um, and uh, of course it is. Um, and I think that the, of course, the show is divisive, and I don't think Lynch would have it any other way. But I think that this idea of as much fun as it is to unpack the show, talk about what means what, throw talking head lyrics out there, or the the, the you know the Jow Day um, uh, uh, definition that you sent me this morning, Jeff, which which was just absolutely fascinating. Um, which I, if you have not already shared with your listening audience, I will leave to you. Suffice to say that you know Twin Peaks is a Talmud; it's not a Torah. And in Jewish parlance, basically, the Torah is the word of God. That's basically like, this is what it is. This is what God says. This is how we live our lives. This is what happened with Abraham and Isaac. This is what happened with Adam and Eve. These are the stories. But the Talmud is basically the living text, which is, how do we interpret these things? What, what are the practical applications of these things? What, what are we, how are we supposed to derive meaning from them? And it's rabbis and over centuries basically unpacking and debating openly uh, this text that is meant to be befuddling, meant to be packed with mystery, meant to not have any clear explanation. And I think that anybody who has ever watched any episode of Twin Peaks, let alone this final season, and is, and is taking a, Bible, a Torah-like approach, you know, trying to, to be absolute about its divisiveness or its goodness or its badness and say, this is what it is definitively, versus taking the Talmudic approach, um, I want them to behold what happens when the Ark of the Covenant is, is, is opened in front of them and they aren't smart enough to close their eyes like Indian Marion. <laughs> their faces should be burned off and electricity should shoot through them as they have conniptions. Um, not to say they're Nazis. I, I, I'm, I'm just, I just feel like you're, you're not allowed to treat peaks in an, as an absolutist. You have to let it breathe. And part of letting a text like this breathe requires time. Yeah, yeah. A a couple things in response to that. One is, I share your screed, um, and it bothers me as a guy who's been doing TV criticism now for several years. And And look, I'm a hypocrite because I participate in the very thing that I'm about to criticize, which is the whole sort of instant reaction like TV watching culture. And Twin Peaks like disrupts that and blows that up. And uh, because, you know, we TV critics love to kind of like hail TV these days as as art, but demanding art requires a reflective response that takes time, and we shouldn't be rushing to conclusions, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, writing through the night when our brains are super tired. And Twin Peaks like disrupts that. Like, I think there's a reason why I haven't posted here on Tuesday yet any recap or any review because I want to take my time with it knowing that even when I do post something, I, I bet my thoughts are going to change on this thing a week later. And then a month later, I know that I'll be thinking about this for a while and responding to it and feeling my way through it for a while. So Twin Peaks disrupts our TV watching culture. And so, yeah, it does pain me that everyone has to like rush in right away and explain it which is ironic given what Zhaowei might mean or decide whether it was good or bad. Um, so I share your screed. Um, Darren, Damon was referring to the to this definition of Zhaowei that I sent him this morning, which you had actually sent to me. So I bet you have a lot of thoughts on this subject in general, Darren, but but could you begin by sharing the thing that you found on the internet? Yeah, and uh, just to kind of continue the uh, great chain of being here, I, I need to give a shout out to uh, our listener on Twitter. He goes by at F. And his name is single payer now. Awesome. But uh, I think, but no need to get political. Bernie but, uh, Sanders, th- th- Twin Peaks fan. <laughs> Love it. 
<laughs> he and actually a couple other uh, brilliant people out there had sort of found and sent our way that there is a uh, Chinese word, I'm not sure which dialect, which I believe is roughly pronounced Zhao Dei, and one of the meanings of it is explaining, making clear, briefing, um, which of course is ironic that we first hear the word Zhao Dei in the middle of a briefing by the director on screen in a way explaining not just who the big bad is, but arguably kind of explaining how the plot of this season all came together. If you take the idea of this being a plan, a plan that Dale Cooper was somehow involved in seriously, which to me, that's already interesting enough in itself. I feel like there are these interesting conversations to be had about what is Judy and if if Judy is the explanation, which, you know, if, if we know one thing about David Lynch, it's that that seems to be the thing he is perhaps least interested in when it comes to solving a mystery. I find that really, really interesting. Um, I also kind of think that, uh, you know, just to kind of, you guys had mentioned this fear of the word like divisive, and that is in a way the most frustrating thing that can happen whenever a TV show or anything tries to do something a little out there. What I've actually found to be kind of cool just in the last 48 hours or so, not even last 36 hours, is the sort of multiplicative experience of seeing how people have reacted to Twin Peaks has been really interesting for me. I mean, like, I feel like I'm someone who tends to be a little skeptical of, as you guys were saying, the rush to comment via social media or whatever venues we have on stuff. And what does that mean? But one of the things that I find interesting about Twin Peaks is on one hand, to your point, Jeff, there is this sense of like, okay, well, there is no immediate way to explain what just happened. There's no way we can like decode all of this. And people like our pal and previous guest, John Thorne, are probably already looking ahead to years of decoding it. And at the same time, I kind of wonder sometimes if that's part of Lynch's and Frost's strategy for kind of forcing us to engage with Twin Peaks in a different way and even like perhaps a more emotional way. What I found really interesting just in the last couple of days is as much as awesome ideas about what is Judy and alternate realities have been flying, it's also been interesting to see people's emotional responses to it. Uh, like my my brother had, had texted me sort of early Monday morning and just said, you know, I'm just reflecting on how lonely the end of Twin Peaks was, like how lonely that last part yeah. felt versus every that came before. And and when he said that, that, that for me kind of unlocked something that I'd been thinking of too. You know, just the emotional response to it feels to me like it's sort of the best kind of immediate in a way. You know, as much as we do want to take time to ponder all its implications, I find that the sort of tangible emotions of that finale are, are stuff that really stick with me. And I mean, like for you, Damon, like kind of putting aside the decoding elements that are so wonderful in our explanation of this show, like what was the emotional tenor for you of that kind of final act? I mean, like where did you feel like it was leaving the these two characters, even if we can't say which strand of the multiverse they were in, like, what's your kind of feeling about just where they are and what's happened to them? Uh, I'm really glad that you asked. And I think that's really, that's really interesting what your brother said about, about loneliness because, because so the, the answer, the honest answer to your question is one that that's somewhat self aggrandizing and, and through a narcissistic lens, but it is what I was experiencing. And before I, I give that answer. I, I don't want to get all meta and and quasi spiritual, but there have been a number of anthropological studies done about storytelling. And one of kind of one of the great mysteries about uh, about storytelling and myth is that these um, is that a, a variety of indigenous cultures, um, when they first started painting on cave walls, uh, they they came up with very similar myths, although. Uh, they were not in uh, in any kind of communication with one another. And so it seems to suggest, and, and particularly as we did research in the final season of Leftovers on the indigenous peoples of Australia, um, who are commonly known as, as the, Ab the Aborigines, um, uh, that uh, that they believe in this thing called the dream time, uh, which has been mentioned in a lot of popular culture. But that, but there's this kind of like when we dream as as humans, we are tapping into this kind of like shared kind of matrix or force of story and myth. Um, and and 
And the reason that I say that is that as I was watching the, the, that, that final, you know, chunk of time from, from the moment that, uh, you know, kind of, uh, in, in the final hour when, when Cooper and Diane still as Cooper and Diane and behaving as Cooper and Diane decide to kind of cross that threshold. Um, I started thinking about the leftovers, um, uh, because that's what I've spent the last five years of my life thinking about, even though I'm not doing it anymore. It's still very much on my mind. And so this idea that, you know, we basically hung, you know, Tom Parada's idea for the novel was that 2% of the world's population has disappeared. And the big fundamental mystery of the show was where did they go? And, and the finale offered an explanation uh, delivered by Nora Durst as to where they went, uh, something that she witnessed, but we never showed. And I felt as, as Cooper and Diane um, now perhaps as Richard and Linda um, and, and picking up Carrie Page, I felt like they were in that world, that world that we never showed. It was very un- unpopulated. Um, you know, the, when, when they go to a hotel, we don't, we don't see, there, it, there doesn't appear to be a clerk that we see him interact with. Um, uh, when he walks into Judy's restaurant, you know, only one table is, is occupied. Um, and, uh, and there are very few, and of course, when they finally arrive in Twin Peaks, uh, Nora in, in the leftovers finale has this description of what it was like for her to go home, this, this place, Mapleton, where she's looking for her kids and the streetlights still worked, but there were, but there were no people anymore. And I, and I thought about the desolation of, of Cooper and Laura and Laura or, you know, Richard and Carrie's, whatever we want to call them, uh, that final drive and, the, the idea that there was, they really only experienced one other car that might have been following them, that, but then drives past. But they don't, they have very limited interactions with other human beings. And it just started to feel to me like this is an unpopulated place that they're in. Um, this is an empty place. Uh, and, uh, and although I'm not saying that there's a crossover between the worlds at all, I'm just saying like, oh, it's interesting that that was, that that was the place that we decided to end our series and um and and so much of everything that I've ever done was inspired by the original peaks that I feel like I was tapping into that kind of dream space idea um that that no one like Lynch is able to um is able to present the way that he presents it but it does with the with probably the exception of of Diane glimpsing um, this, this, her, her own kind of doppelganger as, as Cooper is inside the, the, um, the hotel office, uh, conforms to the basic rules of, of reality as we know it. There's nothing like strange going on as there are in many other dream spaces or, or sort of like episode eight, um, uh, it, it feels very much grounded in the real world, yet it's very clearly not the world that we have spent the majority of our time in, in this series. And so that idea of saying, you know, uh, uh, it's lonely, it's desolate, it's sad. Um, uh, those are the emotional frequencies that I was very much picking up through my own lens, again, of narcissism and, and self-aggrandizement. But, but also, <laughs> I think th- th- those were the keys that, that, that Lynch and Frost, and, and certainly, again, I, I think we have to say this, and I haven't listened to you guys, your, your pod yet uh, on this finale. I can't wait to hear it. But, but I, we have to talk about how amazing Kyle McLaughlin is uh, all throughout the return. But again, in this finale, just the, the, the way that he decided to play uh, Cooper um, or whoever the hell he is um, once they cross that threshold – I think that all the things that he is feeling, confusion, uh, sadness, isolation, um, uh, uh, perhaps some level of impotence, um, you know, all of the, however, however, Kyle, whatever Kyle is playing is how I'm feeling. He, he was my surrogate empath uh, for, for the, uh, for the final, you know, couple hours. And, uh, and I couldn't ask for a better guide. I mean, what a performance. I've never seen anything like it.
Absolutely. I, I totally agree with what you're saying about Kyle. And to kind of respond to what both of you guys have said, uh, I, I mean, I too, I, I don't think that was narcissism at all, Damon. I mean, I, I know that you're experiencing it through your own experience, but I think we were all feeling that sadness and that loneliness. Maybe for for me, the, the, the peak of that was that really complex, layered, emotionally devastating sex scene between Diane and Cooper, where here are these two people like coming together and having this moment of connection, but all you're feeling is their isolation from each other and their alienation from each other as they're trying to feel something that's just not there, trying to, to connect to a past or nostalgia that is that you know a past that has passed them by and indulge in nostalgia that just will not be satisfying complicated by what must have been an intensely triggering ex- triggering experience for Diane given that uh, her past with Mr. C and having been raped and all of that and Jeff uh, sorry to interrupt but what song is playing as that sex scene is unfolding Right. So My Prayer by The Platters, which is a song that's expressing this sort of pining to live forever in a a, a moment, but was also a song that we heard back in part eight that was used ironically in that, you know, A-bomb sequence. If memory serves, it's not playing during the A-bomb sequence. It's actually what the DJ is playing on the radio um, before... Uh, God of Light comes in and, and crushes his head and interrupts the broadcast. Um, so right. a- am I m- remembering that correctly or not? Yes, continue with your no. analysis, but you're correct. Yeah, because, yes. But then, and again, I, 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 I haven't written down exactly what, uh, what the Abe Lincoln lookalike uh, says, um, you know, about the water and the well and, and horses, uh, et cetera. But w- once he begins speaking, uh, people start losing consciousness. Um, almost like he's the Sandman. Um, and it seems to uh, draw some co- sort of correlation between, you know, that song and, and, and his screed, uh, which is like, it's, it's kind of like this, um, this Egyptian afterlife construct of, of forgetting um, and clearly, uh, you know, forgetting your life. Um, and, and, and because he's like, this is the water, this is the well, this is one of the ideas again, through the, through the leftovers lens in which my brain is set there, the, the idea that we always used in those international assassin episodes is that once you drink the water, you forget, uh, you forget your life. And so I think that that song basically being used as Cooper and Diane, him very dispassionately, her, her very passionately, but, but full of, of, of sadness and regret this is them forgetting that they are Diane and Cooper. Um, uh, so that when mm, he awakes the mm. next morning, her note, I, I was like nodding as he read her note because I was like, they, they, they have forgotten who they are or who they were. Darren, this is why we have Damon on the show because I love that reading. And that's something I had not thought about. I love that. That's great. To connect Mike the leftovers to Twin Peaks from my from my point of view. Um, one of the things I loved about uh, I mean, I loved the whole final season of The Leftovers, and I loved the finale that you guys did. And I loved the themes that it hit of reconnection and and and, and specifically like kind of like grieving uh, a, a lost past, lost opportunities, grieving, mourning, uh, uh, trauma, and all of that. And I kind of felt like in its own way, Twin Peaks like left us in that moment, but using a different approach, like where Nora and Kevin at the spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't watched the leftovers, but please watch it. I mean, but the ending to the finale with Nora and Kevin sitting at that table and connecting with each other and, 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 and just talking it out and forgiving each other and, 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 and grieving a lot of things juxtaposed with now here in twin peaks, those, uh, what I'm haunted by is those staggering moments at the end where Cooper suddenly has this epiphany that, that wait, what year is it? As if he's suddenly recognizing all the, you know, like his lost time and the tragedy that had befallen him of a life that was sort of taken away from him uh, by being hijacked by the black lodge. And now all of a sudden just sort of feeling it and, and, and maybe moving into grieving it. 
And then Laura, like suddenly, you know, Carrie suddenly becoming, you know, hearing her mother's voice inside that house. And then suddenly re- remembering who she is and everything that had happened to her. And that just awesome scream that contains just multitudes of meanings and rage as she sort of just like raging, grieving, if you will, what had done to her. And just the overall kind of like points of both shows of, 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 of being here now, you know, as opposed to being lost in the past or, or whatever. Um, I like how they came to kind of very similar emotional conclusions and maybe philosophical conclusions, but through different means. Yeah. And, and, and clearly we were chasing a different emotional, uh, energy, um, and, and I feel like I do need to kind of circle back and, 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 and finally kind of stop talking about the leftovers because people are like, uh, I thought this was a Twin Peaks podcast. That said, <laughs> I, I, you know, when we, when we spoke the last time, Darren asked me to kind of like run down what, what I wanted, what, what, I, what I wanted from the ending of, of Twin Peaks. And I was like, I just need to know that, that Dale Cooper is okay after everything that he's been through, after leaving him in 25 years in this state of, you know, uh, um, uh, not just ambiguity, but he was in hell. You know, he was trapped. He was possessed. He was in a bad place. And, and, and lo and behold, that is not what I got. Um, you know, in fact, in, in, in many ways, he's, he's just as bad off as he was before, if not worse off, but certainly, um, you know, uh, incomplete. In fact, the, the character who got the ending that I hoped for is Dougie, you know, in, in that one glimpse, <laughs> yeah. in, in that one glimpse of, of Janie E and Sonny Jim greeting their new Topa, uh, who I assume probably behaves much like the Dale Cooper that we know and love and, and, <laughs> and less like Dougie Jones behaves. You know, um, and, and he, de- he doesn't have any dialogue, but he definitely felt but either or it's sort of like, okay, that guy, it, but is he the real Cooper? What does the words the real Cooper even mean? Once you open that conversation up to the Carrie page of it all and, and uh, like people using different names and having alternate identities. And then we're talking about what those golden uh, uh uh, P's mean and who's real and who's not. And what was, is, was NATO, the real Diane and et cetera, et cetera, versus this, I, this sort of grander idea of personality is kind of fractured. And, and it did feel very dreamlike, right? Where it's sort of like, you know, one of the recurring dream nightmares that I had as a kid was that I would go to my house and the house was occupied by strangers and nobody knew me and nobody had heard of my parents. That is, a, and I didn't, I haven't thought about that nightmare in my adult life until Sunday night, but it, but I had it. And when, and, and when yeah, I shared yeah. that idea with some other people that I discussed the, um, the, the finale with, they were like, Oh, oh crap. I had that nightmare too. Um, and, and that's the ending of, of, of the series of Twin Peaks for, for the, uh, for, for the indefinite future. Wow. Um, um, you know, that's all I can say is wow. One of the things, yeah, Jeff and I had kind of discussed this. I'm so taken with the fact that part 18, it's almost like three very different endings for Agent Cooper, or at least three different endings for people who look like Kyle MacLachlan, where you see the shot of Mr. C just burning forever. You see the shot of Dougie returned, and then you see many, many, many more shots about what happens to our Agent Cooper, if we can even still call him that by the end. But something you said about just sort of returning to your home and it not being your home. I'm very struck by the fact that this idea of, uh, for the Jones family, Dougie's back and he's better than ever. It reminds me a lot of, you know, the end of Back to the Future when it's like, Marty, you're home and your parents are rich and awesome now. I I loved that um, Matt Zoller cites at Vulture, he'd kind of compared what Agent Cooper does instead of going back in time and looking at the clips of Firewalk with me to what Marty does in Back to the Future Part 2, which I think I may have also 
done that. Maybe we were tapped into the same dream time or, or something like that. But I'm taken with the fact that what happens to our Agent Cooper is more kind of like that fan theory that was on overthinkingit.com, which is like, so Marty McFly is back home and doesn't know anything about his own history because he changed it all. And his parents are functionally different people. His his brother and sister are different people. It's, it's, it's interesting that like this ending does kind of allow the, the face of Agent Cooper to kind of go in both directions, that you have that happy ending and then a much, much, much less happy ending, which, you know, if nothing else, to end an 18-hour experience like that is interesting. But to end Twin Peaks like that, if this is indeed the end, is also really kind of bold and and kind of heartbreaking in a way. And I would say as heartbreaking as what happens to Agent Cooper is, I'm still so just taken with the horror of the fact that the end of this show, maybe forever, the last line of dialogue is a wordless, incoherent scream from Laura Palmer. There's a strange and awful book ending to that that I still can't quite get out of my head. And I guess just, yeah, the, the idea of ending with that horror is something that I'm, I'm not sure I've ever really seen before. It, it's not even quite as ambiguous as something like The Sopranos finale. <laughs> like, at least The yeah. Sopranos finale, you can say, like, oh, maybe he's alive or maybe not. You, there's no easy out for this Twin Peaks finale, I don't think. I, I, I love that analysis. And, uh, and one thing worth mentioning, and you guys might have already discussed this, and if so, I apologize. But in, in my, you know, in my uh, morning after sort of deep dive into what is everybody saying, what did I miss? Like, are, the, are there fun little factoids out there? Um, and you'll have to fact check this. But it, it seems that the actress who played the woman who owned the house is the woman who owns that house in real life. Yes. So, so basically, <laughs> that you know, Laura Palmer's house went up for sale a number of years ago, and this woman, like, who's not even a Twin Peaks fan, bought it for, like, 600 grand or something like that. And when they, they were like, we're going to shoot at this house, Lynch, what, that's, uh, I'm now extrapolating, but he's like, I want to give her the part. And it seems <laughs> to suggest in the overthinking com universe that Kyle McLaughlin and, and Cheryl Lee have basically actually crossed over into the real world. Um, the world in which we inhabit out of the television show, twin peaks into the real world. And that woman is basically like, I, I've never heard of Laura Palmer because I don't watch Twin Peaks. <laughs> um, you know, I don't recognize either one of you because I've never seen Dune or, or 19 other movies that Tom McLaughlin have been in. And it's just such an interesting and purposeful choice to cast the actual non-professional acting owner of the house in the pivotal final scene of your series. You know, like, uh, right. what a move. To, uh, you know, <laughs> bravo. <laughs> what, what I was kind of reminded of in that moment is, you know, uh, was it was a story that Lynch has told about when he moved to Los Angeles. And I think this may be kind of fitting to bring in, given that. So, you know, in in all of these 18 hours of Twin Peaks, Lynch seemed to be making a lot of sort of implicit or sly allusions to his past work, to his life, to his influences, specifically Sunset Boulevard. It was interesting, um, you know, uh, in part 15, 16, I forget now, that the, the, the moment that sort of essentially triggers or leads to the ultimate triggering of, 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 of Dougie to go to, to, you know, have the Cooper consciousness come alive and wake up is, is, is watching, uh, 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 Sunset Boulevard, one of Lynch's favorite films and the moment in particular in which the name Gordon Cole is spoken, but Lynch tells this story about about when he moved to LA, um, he decided that he wanted to go look for a house, uh, Norma Desmond's house in Sunset Boulevard. So he travels Sunset Boulevard looking for this house and he couldn't find it. Um, and he was stunned. He, he learned that actually the house, Norma's house in Sunset Boulevard, it was actually on Wilshire Boulevard. And he was devastated by this because it, it shattered the 
Right. Who sh- it shattered the illusion of the movie for him. Um, and it was like a dream that had suddenly been broken. And that's what I was kind of thinking of there at the end of Twin Peaks when you have like Kyle and Cheryl, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 Cooper and, and Laura arriving at this house and learning that it's no longer Laura's house. And then, in fact, it's actually um, this sort of meta confrontation with the reality that Twin Peaks itself is a dream, is a fantasy. And here at the end, it's it's ending that the, the dream is over. Um, the illusions have been shattered. Um, so I liked uh, for, that all worked for me <laughs> in, in a way. That's one thing I was I was thinking about. I, I think that the obvious conclusion, and again, what's great about this piece, uh, I don't even know what to call it, but this piece of art, because I feel like calling it a television show, it, it aired on television, but it, it, it doesn't feel like a television show for all the, the best possible reasons. Um, you know, the, the, the conclusion that I think that we are meant to draw from uh, you know, Monica Bellucci's query is that we are the dreamer. Um, you know, not Cooper, not Laura, not Cole, not the fireman, uh, not Freddie and his wonderful glove. Um, you know, we are the dreamer. Um, and like any dream that we are trying to explain to a loved one, um, through the prism of, of our own self and say, this is what we think our own dreams mean. Uh, we should apply the, the same methodology to, to Twin Peaks. And I think that, you know, David, as particularly David, but probably Mark too, would be, would be just fine with that approach. A lovely thought, maybe one that we should end on, unless Darren, do you have any, I feel like I have maybe one more question for you, Damon, is that, uh, again, we're still processing this, but as an ending, are you good with it? Or would you love to see more Twin Peaks? So I already shared this with a friend and colleague, and I apologize to him if he's listening because he's, he's heard it before. But I was like, uh, I, I, th- this is actually the functioning metaphor for the answer to your question, which is, um, you remember the, the, that, uh, the, the Christmas classic, A Christmas Story? Yes. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right, Aaron. So in, in the movie, whether you've seen it or not, the, 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 the hero is this young boy named Ralphie, and he's being raised in, in uh, you know, very probably David Lynch's favorite era, the 1950s. And it's just sort of a coming of age story about one Christmas holiday season. And Ralphie is basically obsessed with getting this, this Red Rider BB gun rifle. Um, it's all he wants. And he's obsessed with getting it. He's doing the whole movie is really just about the, the hoops that he is jumping through to acquire uh, this thing. And he's also still at the age where he kind of believes in Santa Claus. Um, and so he's asking his parents for it. He writes an essay uh, in his in, in, in school uh, uh, that he thinks is a masterpiece. Um, it, and every every adult basically gives him the same response, which is what Darren just just said. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. If you get the rifle, you are going to shoot your eye out. He's completely and totally not deterred by this warning. In fact, it only impassions him more. So he writes the essay. He gets back. It's like a C, and it says, you'll shoot your eye out with an exclamation point. <laughs> he waits on an epically long line at the mall to get an audience with Santa himself. And the kids have to ascend this great kind of like cotton ball covered mountain that looks like snow to get to Santa Claus. And he finally says to Santa, I want a Red Ryder, uh, a BB gun with the lock rifle and all the things that it does. And Santa says, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. And he literally kicks Ralphie in the face, sending him down this, this slide. And, and that doesn't deter Ralphie. So anyway, Christmas morning rolls around and the kids open up their presents and there's lots of good swag and some bad swag, scratchy sweaters from aunts and, and, uh, and it, like a ridiculous bunny costume that Ralphie has to put on. And now all the presents have been opened and he did not get what he wanted. And he's sitting there with his mom and dad. His dad is played by Darren, Darren McGavin of Night Stalker fame. And, uh, and, and his dad says, so Ralphie, did you get everything you want? And the kid's trying to keep a stiff upper lip. You know, he doesn't want to be bratty. And he's saying, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I, I, I kind of got, yes, I'm, I'm really grateful for everything I got. And, and then his dad says, hey, 
what, what's that over, over behind the radiator? And Ralphie looks over there and there's this wrapped brown parcel that is, that is shaped exactly like a BB gun and his face lights up and he runs over and he unwraps it. And sure enough, it is the Red Rider BB gun. And that gun for me was this season of Twin Peaks. Um, you know, it was the present that I never expected to get that I, that I wanted so badly for years and years and years. And I resigned myself to the fact that I was never going to get it. And then in one single tweet about chewing gum, you know, Mark Frost and David Lynch said, Hey, what's that behind the radiator? Now, (laughs) once what happens to Ralphie, once he takes that gun out of the box and fires it in his backyard, he shoots his eye out, you know, it, It it breaks his glasses. He he doesn't literally lose an eye, but he would have if he wasn't wearing the glasses. Everybody was right. And I think I'm glad to have shot my eye out. Um, I was warned. I knew exactly what I was getting into. That gun was always going to be dangerous. That was part of its allure. And, uh, And as the blood basically streaks down my face, I am smiling ear to ear. Uh, this is, this is not the ending that I wanted, but the ending I deserved. (laughs) Twin Peaks, the return, the thing that shot our eyes out and we loved it. I am. Uh, I will just add one thing to the, to that absolutely brilliant summary of that film, Damon, which is that I believe at the very end of it, Ralphie is going to sleep. And I think he has the Red Rider BB gun with him as he sleeps. Uh, In conclusion, Ralphie was the dreamer all along. I I think we can say that very comfortably. (laughs) That is Jerry Horn footworthy, Darren. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) I take that as a compliment, even if it was not meant as such. Damon Lindelof. Oh my God. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you if they would like to share their thoughts about Twin Peaks with you or just, or just find you in general? I am only on Instagram for social. It's, it's at Damon Lindelof with, with one F at the end. Uh, I do not read my comments. That is not, um, that is not, uh, to be obnoxious. I just, I, I'm, I, I can't fall into the, um, into the black, uh, whole abyss of, of reading the comments for fear that, that, uh, horrors lurk within. So, um, but, uh, but I do occasionally, um, uh, probably more than occasionally, uh, post musings that are both, uh, prime. If you like pop culture and, um, and are freaked out by what's happening in the country right now, independent of, uh, what your political affiliation might be, that's kind of my Insta brand, uh, right now. So, uh, uh, those, those are the two things that I'm interested in. That sounds very healthy. Uh, Jeff and I are much less healthy. We do read comments. If anybody out there wants to chat with us, he's at EW Doc Jensen on Twitter. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. We got one last big episode we're going to do. Email us your thoughts at TwinPeaksAW.com. If you like what you've heard, if you think this podcast is the Red Rider, Two Carbine, Double Barrel, I forget the rest of it, BB Gun of podcasts, go on Apple Podcasts and give us a rate, <laughs> give us a review, let us know what you think. Damon Lindelof, thank you so so much. You are the official third timer of Twin Peaks podcast guest. So thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you very much. It has such a better ring than two timer. And uh, it was uh, it was it was an absolute pleasure uh, talking about the show with you guys and let us never speak of it again. 